could Mrs. Walker teach us about the Bible if she was stupid enough to think that Owen Meany had put himself up in the air? <laughs> Owen was always dignified about it. He never said, They did it. They always do it. They pick me up and lose my money, mess up my cards, and they never put me down when I ask them to. Why do you think I see you up here? That, ladies and gentlemen, if you are wondering, is a recording of Mr. John Irving, an American writer and novelist of some renown, reading from his novel, his novel in progress at the time called A Prayer for Owen Meany. And it is very interesting to hear that recording uh, that was made in front of a live audience when he was actually in the process of composing that novel. Greetings, everyone. It is episode 34 of the Book Exchange podcast. And my name is Jude Lovell, the co-host and co-founder of our humble podcast here, coming to you from the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania in a rare evening recording. And I am joined this evening by my twin brother and co-host of the podcast, John Lovell from Easton, Maryland. John, hello. Hello, hello. Good evening to everyone listening and to you too. Jude, what's up? Oh, man, not much. Uh, this is an episode that we have been planning for some time. And I feel like we've been gearing up to have this discussion also for some time. So uh, I'm raring to go, and I hope you are too. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to have it. We, it feels like we have been talking about this one for forever. Had a couple uh, scheduling glitches and setbacks over the last couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of you have taken notice of that and given given us a little grief, and that and we like that. So we're glad that people are out there listening, but uh, it's time to get it done. So let's go. Yeah, and we decided, John, um, early on in the process, while both you and I were reading the novel, which is the topic, I'll just mention this, that the topic of this episode of episode 34 is the fourth in an occasional series that we do from time to time, as you know, and as our listeners know, um, where we call it the BXC Reviews, where we take on one particular book and we do what we sometimes call a deep dive into that book. This is the fourth time we're doing it, and we're doing it on uh, an older novel from the late 1980s called A Prayer for Owen Meany. And so we decided, I, early on in the process, I found a recording of John Irving, the author of the novel, reading, like I said, reading to a live audience while he was working on it. He was, he, in the larger context, if you listen to the rest of that recording, he does quite a bit of setup for, for reading from the novel, and he explains that he's only four chapters into it. So that was just a really interesting thing to find, and we thought it might be unconventional to just begin with that reading because, you know, um, you can hear the voice of the author. And then, of course, you can hear the author's voice for the main character of Owen Meany, uh, uh, whose voice is rather significant in the whole novel, as I'm sure we will get into, John. So I just thought it was an interesting way to kick off the episode instead of, you know, some rock and roll. Yeah, his voice is wrecked, if I can use the word that he uses in the Somewhat famous first line of the novel, but uh, as you say, we'll get into that. Um, yeah, it was pretty interesting to hear that, and I hadn't heard it before, nor had I read this novel before. Well, we'll discuss that, I'm sure, but uh, before uh, we decided to do this show. So it's just one of those blind spots that I had. But as we say, we'll get into all that, and it uh, should be an interesting show. 
Yeah. So we're it's going to be fun to dive in. So we're going to do that just as soon as we take care of a couple administrative things. I would like to just remind everybody once again to send us your feedback to the email address, book exchange with an X twins at gmail.com or to go on our anchor.com slash book dash exchange uh, site. And you can leave us a voicemail there if you prefer to do so. And John, before we get into what we're reading, I think there was something that you wanted to mention as well. Well, it actually has to do with what you were just talking about. Um, I actually do have a little bit of feedback that I want to share. Great. Uh, on this episode, uh, not delivered through either of those two channels, but delivered nonetheless. Uh, we had a listener who's a friend of the show, um, a friend of mine, but also someone who's been listening rather faithfully. So really appreciate that. I'm not going to name them by name, but uh, actually gave us some constructive feedback about these kinds of episodes. So, and it was pretty simple, but I think worth mentioning. Um, so uh, her feedback, I guess I just outed her gender, but oh well. But her feedback was um, she enjoys following along on these review episodes. So one bit of feedback was maybe we could, um, if we're planning on doing one of these shows, we could kind of announce it maybe a little bit earlier because this particular listen, listener enjoys going and reading the book prior to us recording the episode. So that's, um, we've always said that if you haven't read the book, you can go back and, you know, find it in the archives or whatever. But she thought it would be helpful to know if we were planning on doing an episode like this and then she could sort of decide whether she wanted to play along at home. So that's number one. Um, and the second part of her feedback, which I thought was really good, is she, and and we talked about this, the, the, the last time we did this was a novel called, we did this kind of show, a BXC review, was a novel called Via Negativa. And uh, it's a little harder to find. So, uh, and uh, she was actually frustrated because she couldn't find it at a local library uh, where she lives and you know wanted to play along but couldn't and actually tried to play along you know after we had recorded it but couldn't so her feedback was you know maybe when you do something like this you you could focus on a novel that's maybe a little bit more widely known or a little bit easier to access so and you and I I mentioned to her you and I had actually just discussed that about how you know when we when we have these BXC review shows every once in a while we may want to and this is sort of on-air production meeting here kind of thing, but, we, you know, we, we may want to, you know, take something on that a lot of people are reading or might be, you know, kind of a zeitgeist novel or, or, or book or whatever. So anyway, I thought it was some just really constructive feedback. It was, it's gratifying to know that, you know, people are listening along and, and are interesting and interested in these types of episodes. And I, I really want to, uh, if you're listening, you know who you are, and I really want to say we appreciate very much the fact that you've listened along with the show and were willing to give us some constructive feedback. So thank you so much. Okay, little technical glitch there, but anyway. So, Madam Listener, if you are listening this time, um, first of all, I probably don't know you, so I just wanted to say really quickly, I want to echo my brother's thanks to you for listening to the show, number one. And also for those two great pieces of advice, I think we would probably do well to if we, John, when we, we don't have another one lined up just yet, but when we do try to give a little lead time to the audience. So that's a great suggestion. And then we, we have talked about um, 
you know, sort of zoning in more on we're, we're, we're proud of all the review episodes we've done. We think they turn out really well, but you know, in, in the near future, we think we're going to try to focus a little bit more on books that have some of that notoriety and might be a little easier to find. So both are great pieces of advice and we're grateful that you're out there listening and you care enough to share some with us. Yeah. And she was also, and we've encouraged this too. She actually suggested uh, a book that we might want to review. So, um, I took a look at that. Sounds intriguing. And we could talk about that, you know, off air as it were, but uh, this is exactly what we're, we're looking for. We really appreciate the interaction and we're very open to people's suggestions and either for something to review or how we can make the show better. So that's that. All right. Yeah. And then did you have something else you wanted to mention? If I did, I forgot it for now. So maybe he'll come come to me later, but I think we can just move on. Okay, very good. Um, so why don't oh, we yeah. talk? Yeah, 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 yes. I do. <laughs> I okay, do have something I want to mention. And this is important. Um, our musical interludes for this episode come to us, uh, what I'll call an electronic, uh, uh, up-and-coming electronic music composer who goes by the name of Voids Panda. And uh, which is a hilarious name, but uh, we have that's right, we got a new musical uh contributor uh with us for this episode. I'm very excited about it. Happens to be, you know, I, I guess I don't know, dude. I guess we have a musical family, even though neither of us are, are currently you know practicing musicians. Uh, <laughs> you know, longtime listeners will, will remember and recall that you know, my son Caleb, who's a guitar player, has has been providing a lot of our interlude music. Well, my co-host son, his name is Patrick. He's my godson. Hello, Patrick. Um, is kind of a burgeoning, you know, composer of melodies and, and kind of beats. And um, he's really, he has a really a great ear for music. And he's, he's young, but he's starting to compose some of his own melodies. And, you know, under that name. And, and we've decided to feature some of his, his own music as, far, as our interlude music here. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, Patrick's a great kid. I'm so glad that we can have another member of our family, literally in this case, but a member of the Book Exchange family to, uh, you know, help make the show a little bit better. So these little, you know, uh, interstitial melodies were written uh, by Jude's son, Patrick. So super excited about that. I just had to mention that. <laughs> well, thanks for doing that. Yeah. So this uh, this episode is a debut. I almost want to rush to the break. This episode is a debut of music from Void Spanda, my my young son Patrick, and uh, he's very excited to have his m- music on the show. And uh, and yeah, so we'll probably alternate. Uh, John, as you know, um, your own son, your oldest son, who performs under the name Young Wolf, is my godson. We kind of it's all in the family here in the Book Exchange podcast. And uh, <laughs> there's there's no bigger fan of his music than me, except for maybe you and his mother. Um, <laughs> So, but he's getting a break this week and Voids Panda is coming in and we'll probably go back and forth, but it's really fun to have our sons involved and we hope you like the music that uh, Patrick created or the Panda created for this show. And, uh, to, and that's Voids with a Z, by the way. So don't, don't get that wrong. And uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Patrick, if you ever hear this, super excited to have you on board and contributing to the show. And uh, I love this stuff that he's written and I, I hope he continues. So. So uh, well, thank you for that indulgence, but uh, we're excited about it. 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Voids Panda. And uh, why don't we take a quick break and hear something from Voids Panda. And when we return, John, we'll talk about what we're reading. Right on. John, there's a lot to say about a prayer for own meaning. So let's talk really quick about what we are reading now. I'm going to kick it over to you. Tell me what you're into. Well, I'm into the panda. That's that's number <laughs> one. You know, so and I hope people are going to start getting in into the panda because it's about to he's about to sweep the nation. But anyway, um, yeah, we can do this quickly. I, I I've already talked to you a little bit about what I'm reading, but to share with our listeners, um, I really. <laughs> took a took a hard left curve with with this book that I'm reading now, but uh, I'm really enjoying it so far, which is going to strike a lot of people as weird, I would imagine. But what I'm reading is is actually a a medieval manuscript. It's the first uh, autobiography. <laughs> the, I'm sorry, the oldest autobiography written in English uh, wow. that we that we still know about today. And the amazing thing to me, there's so many amazing things about this book that the fact that it exists, but, you know, this isn't by some prominent, uh, you know, theologian or academic or po poet. Uh, this was written by, I don't want to say average, because clearly she was extraordinary, but by, by a kind of a quote unquote normal <laughs> medieval woman who is from a somewhat mid to upper class, I guess you could say, uh, but kind of a regular family woman um, named Marjorie Kemp. This book is called The Book of Marjorie Kemp. But she had some, you know, what you would call mystical experiences, had kind of a conversion experience to uh, Christianity. And this book is kind of her spiritual autobiography. But it's very different than other, you know, spiritual classics that I've read. And I realize it's, you know, some people may never have dipped into that genre at all, but um, it, it's very, it's very down to earth. This is a woman who, you know, got married early. She had nine children. She started a brewery. She was kind of a business owner, had a busy family, you know, kind of had a husband that she loves, but just had, had, had it, you know, but sort of bickers with too, but had this kind of, you know, regular domestic life in kind of rural England. Then she had these, this, you know, conversion experience. And she ends up, you know, having sort of all, all kinds of mystical experiences and visions. And, and um, but what's interesting about the book is it doesn't it doesn't only stay in that realm, kind of describing these bizarre ritual, uh, bizarre uh, religious experiences. It also is, you know, very down to earth about her life and the things she struggles with and how she struggles with her husband. And um, and then she decides to go on widely on pilgrimage which of course at the time meant you go by foot and she traveled all over europe she went to rome she went to germany she went to norway she went to uh the holy land and she describes all these travels and all her encounters along the way and then she also goes and visits you know various very 
famous, you know, mystics in, you know, what some church might, some churches may refer to as saints. You know, she goes and visits Julian of Norwich, who is, was, is a very well-known saint in the Catholic church and, you know, uh, very famous for her spiritual wisdom and writings. And she visits others and different bishops along the way. So it's just kind of like spiritual testament, but it has a real earthiness to it. And there's a lot of wit to it too. Uh, she just, she sounds like a real person, even though she's having these, you know, religious experiences and visions that she describes that are, you know, maybe not the easiest to relate to, but then she'll describe, you know, how hard it is to travel by foot or, you know, uh, how, uh, how people react to her and a lot of people can't stand her and because of what she's describing to them. So it's this really kind of fascinating, you know, spiritual memoir slash road, road story, I guess you would say, and story of pilgrimage uh, from the Middle Ages, written from the point of view of this woman. And it is, you know, survived to this day. And I don't, I, I don't think there are many records like it, particularly from a female point of view from that, from that era. Um, so it's really, fa it's really fascinating stuff. You know, if you're, if you have any interest at all in, you know, uh, Christian history or anything like that, or, you know, you might find it of interest, but uh, I, I just think it's fascinating that this, that this memoir has survived and uh, that you can just kind of read the story and kind of imagine what it was like to be, you know, a, a woman traveling around by foot all over the kind of the known world and sharing, uh, having spiritual conversations with like a, a greatest hits list, basically, of, of some of the spiritual leaders of the time. It's really that uh, to me, that sounds very interesting. And, and uh, I've been enjoying reading it. So a little bit of a that's sort of an obscure pick, but that's what I'm into. So where, what century was that was that set in, John? Oh, OK. So I, I she was born in the late 14th century. So 1370s, I want to say. Wow. And this, but this memoir, she couldn't read or write. So she dictated it to a, a friar that she knew and who was kind of a spiritual advisor. Um, and, and she dictated it towards the end of her life. So this would be in like the 1430s, somewhere around there. So Man, it's, it's just a really fascinating choice. Um, you know, uh, is it difficult reading or is it not difficult? No, it, 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 the translation is actually really good. It's not difficult reading at all. And again, it's, she's very down to earth and frank even about like her sexual life or you know some of the arguments she has with her husband and uh, you know and kind of the, the negotiations that happen between men and women and um she there, it begins with a period she has she gives birth to one of her children and she has essentially a period of postpartum depression and she talks very frankly about that so no it's very surprisingly easy to read i i assume a lot of that is a translation because it was written in whatever middle english or I think the original manuscript would probably be a challenge, but this translation is actually pretty clear. Wow. That's really fascinating. It's like a time machine or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great pick. Um, well, I'll just, I'll move on to mine just to keep it moving, but uh, that's, that's fascinating. Take note listeners. Um, so I'm just finishing. I'm, I'm in the last like 10 pages of a book that I mentioned at the end of the last podcast. Um, it's a fascinating biography, I guess, that I, I would recommend to our listeners. Anybody who's out there who's into biographies, particularly literary biographies or science, 
This is a really interesting uh, brand new book. It's uh, out this year published. It's called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night. And the subtitle is, I believe, Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science. And it's written by a professor at a London school. Nick, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Professor at a London school named John Tresh. I think he might be American. I might be wrong. But he's employed at a school in London. But he's like a professor. And uh, I think he took a lot of time and did a ton of research. And the book is posited as a sort of a new comprehensive biography of Edgar Allan Poe, one of our most legendary American literary figures, but perhaps one of the most misunderstood to read this book. But it's also, it's not just a biography, um, but it's also positioned as also an analysis of kind of the moment that he was coming up in, in terms of the development of an American, particularly of an American science or system of sciences or a school of scientific thought or however you want to say that, and how his literary career dovetailed with this period of time and the development of science. Um, influenced very much by what was happening in Europe, but what the book takes great pains, and it's a very well-written book, it's fluid, it's small chapters, it's got tons of fascinating information. And if I had to say just really quick, like, you know, two big things that I learned from the book, I learned all kinds of things from the book, but two really big things that I learned from the book. Number one is how much of an interest Edgar Allan Poe had in science um, all the way back to the beginning of his, you know, uh, literary career, like his manhood. He went to West Point, didn't graduate from there, but he studied, he learned particularly astronomy, engineering, and I'm trying to remember the third science, it's escaping me right now, but um, as well as poetry. So he studied those things at West Point and he got a very specific educational foundation in like astronomy and engineering from being a West Point cadet, but then he didn't finish. It was like court martial and got thrown out. But from that point on, his interest in science at least matched his interest in like poetry, writing stories and the literary scene. And so that's one thing I learned from this book. And the other thing was how much he knew about science, how much he followed it. He did all kinds of book reviews and nonfiction work about the sciences. And he kind of stayed on top of it. And at the end of his life, this is the book begins with an account of this lecture he gave at the very end of his life, like within a couple months of his, of his tragic death, only in his forties, he gave a lecture in New York that unfortunately was ill attended because of a blizzard, but it was cut. The, the subject of the lecture was the universe. And the, wow. the, ti- the title was Eureka, which translated means I found it, which I didn't even know. Um, and he gave a theory about basically the origin of the universe. And the writer kind of demonstrates and proves in this book that he was way ahead of the almost virtually all of science in basically predicting or being one of the first people to advance the theory of the Big Bang. You know, he was he was far ahead of the curve on that, you know, uh, of the origin of the universe coming from a small source and then ex- exploding out and et cetera. And yeah. also he was one of the first people in the world who um, declared that the consumption of, uh, let me see if I can get this right, like carbon-based materials or basically carbon fuels would be catastrophic for the environment. And he was way ahead of that as well. Wow. 
and a lot of other things in there. Um, and, it, and it also dovetails with the story of his life, how tragic it was, how he struggled with alcoholism. And it is just a fascinating biography that also delves into the state of things in the world of science and how he was intimately involved with how things developed in the United States with regard to science. So I want to get on to our main discussion, so I'll leave it there. But I, I, the book has my strongest recommendation, and uh, I think you would really love it as well. Hey, man, if I, if I didn't know you any better, which I do know you better than most, um, I, <laughs> I, would, I would think that that has a very good shot of making your uh, top 10 books list at the end of the year because uh, that really it sounds like that really resonated with you and fascinated you, and it sounds like, sounds like an amazing book. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And uh, I just have to say one more anecdote. He he became a household name with the publication of The Raven um, in 1846, which was uh, three years before his death. And when he finished it, he wrote to one of his friends. He, he wrote, I've just written the greatest poem that has ever been written. <laughs> so I, he had a sense of <laughs> some window into his, you know, thought process or whatever but he also uh he also was kind of right I, I wouldn't say it's the best poem I've written but it was like it was an absolute sensation and another really fascinating part of the book is a, it's how some of his most famous tales kind of go over you know and poems etc so um we'll leave it there but um check that book out if you're interested and uh John let's take one more break list us some voids panda and then how's about we dive into our discussion of a prayer for Owen Meany. Sounds good, man. Once again, bring on the panda. All right, we're back, and we have a book to discuss, John. Uh, we both read it at great length. <laughs> so our book is called A Prayer for Own Meaning. Once again, it's a very famous novel, at least in this country. It was written by Mr. John Irving. And here's what I'm going to do, John. I'm going to give a little little brief background on John Irving uh, for our listeners. I'm going to give like a one or two sentence synopsis, if I can, of the novel itself. And then I have a question to ask you just to kind of get the ball rolling. Uh, you may not like the question. <laughs> well, uh, well, I mean, we'll see. But it's, uh, it's the kind of question that is tough to answer. So um, I'll go through that stuff, and then I'll pose my question and kick it over to you, and then we can kind of go from there. How's that sound? Hit me. Sounds fine. Okay. So John Irving is an American novelist. He's still alive. He's 79 years old today, and he's most famous – uh, probably for, you mentioned it the last time, one of these three novels, there's a novel he wrote called the cider house rules that was made into a relatively famous film. Uh, the film was from the nineties. I think the novel came out in the eighties. Um, um, probably his most famous novel maybe is called the world according to Garp that came out in 1979. It, um, I, I believe it won 
it won the you know, interestingly enough, it won the National Book Award in the paperback edition. I didn't even know you could do that. So it 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 did not win in 1979, and then it won as a paperback in 1980, which is huh. interesting. Weird. I, you know, I don't know what that means, but yeah, anyway, um, it was a heavily you know laureled book, and it was also made into a famous movie in the early 1980s, starring Robin Williams, the late. Robin Williams. And then the third book that he's most famous for is this one called A Prayer for Own Meaning, which was published in 1989. And that's the one that we're going to talk about here. So John Irving became very famous, uh, well-known in America. His career started in the 60s. He was well-known in the 80s and in the 90s, and he's still working. Um, his last novel was called Avenue of Mysteries, and it came out in 2015. And, and I checked out his website, and he has a new novel that he's talking about quite a bit it's called darkness as a bride and it's in progress right now so hmm. i guess he's i guess he's still at it wow and um also john john irving was well known as a writing teacher and i i thought coming into this episode and doing some research i thought he so he taught at the iowa writers workshop which is the most famous writing program in the country only like two percent of applicants get into the school and I thought he wrote, he taught writing there for a long time because I feel like I've heard of a lot of people that studied under him before. As it turns out, he was only there for three years. And there's two novelists that are huge with me that I know for sure were students of John Irving and sort of protégés of John Irving. One is Ron Hansen, the author of Marriott Nexacy, which yeah. I've said a lot of times is like my favorite novel, probably if I had to list one. Um, he was a student of John Irving's at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he actually, Ron Hansen's experience plays into a prayer for Owen Meany because I happen to know that Ron Hansen, while he was a student of John Irving's, got a job over the summer as like his live-in babysitter for John Irving's young sons at the time. And so they spent a lot of time together, and John Irving was hugely influential on Ron Hansen's career. And then the second novelist is Stephen Wright, who I've also mentioned a lot on this podcast. He's He was my writing teacher and thesis instructor at the new school in New York when I got my Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. And he's the author of five uh, amazing novels. And I remember just really quick, my first day of school in the graduate writing program was a workshop with Stephen Wright. And he came in and he introduced himself and he said, I was taught creative writing by John Irving at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and I subscribed to his theory, which is we do not tear each other down and we, we are not mean or disrespectful to one another as we discuss our work and progress. And I always remember that. You know, he said that right off the bat, and he said he learned it from John Irving. Wow. So that gives you a little flavor of the sort of teacher he was. Um, and while he was teaching at the Iowa Writers Workshop, he was a colleague of John Cheever, another famous American writer. So uh, Irving was well known as both a teacher and as a novelist, and he's had a pretty prolific and renowned career. And um, so the book that we're going to talk about today called A Prayer for Own Meaning is basically a story of a young uh, boy growing up in New Hampshire um, in the middle of the 20th century, who was born, you know, uh, it's narrated by his best friend. And these two boys were born in like the 40s and they came up through the 50s and the 60s. And 
ended up in kind of like the Vietnam era. And basically it's uh, the, the, the friend of Owen Meany who's telling the story is telling about Owen Meany and his, and his life. And Owen Meany is a peculiar individual who believes from a very early age that he's uh, what he calls God's instrument. And he, a few things happen early on in the book, which he feels offer proof of him being God's instrument. And then it goes on from there to tell their life story through a series of very strange and sort of quixotic adventures that they have together until they reach the Vietnam era, era as young men. And then Owen Meany is, becomes involved with the Vietnam War and his friend, whose name is uh, John Wheelwright, who's telling the story, does not go to the war. And, that, and at the end of the book, their paths kind of diverge. So it's the story of this very unique and fascinating and strange character named Owen Meany growing up in this small town in New Hampshire with his best friend, John Wheelwright. And that's basically the, a synopsis of the novel. Is there anything I should add to that, John? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, that's that's kind of like, you know, the the bones of the story. You know, there's a lot that there's a lot that happens in this novel, of course, which we'll get into. But no, that's kind of the sort of the uh, outline, I guess, or skeleton of the plot. Yeah, I just wanted to leave it kind of really high levels, you know, so while we get into the discussion, we can sort of fill in some of the gaps because it's because um, it's a hard book really to to sort of describe and one or two sentences because it's got so many strange sort of episodes in it. And uh, so I have a question for you to start the discussion, but before I ask you my question, I just want to reiterate or explain to our listeners that we're going to discuss the entire novel here. And so we are going to talk about the end of the book, which is very, a very distinctive ending to the book. And if you don't want to know what happens at the end of the book, you, you don't want to listen to this episode until, <laughs> until you've read the book yourself. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we got a it has a very, you know, memorable ending. Well, we're definitely going to get into the ending. So uh, all will be discussed. Right. So, John, just to get into the meat of the discussion here, my question to you. So I originally had like a different question, but it was a similar to the one that I'm going to ask. But I actually went back and I was listening to our our last um, book review episode. Sorry. My last book review episode of uh, Via Negativa, actually, and uh, yeah. it, as it turns as it turns out, when we were starting that discussion, uh, you asked a question to me that's very similar to the one that I was going to ask you. So I'm actually going to use the question that you asked me um, because sure. it is so similar. And that's you know, a prayer for own meaning is a, a very long book, and and it, it feels even longer when you're reading it. So my question to you is. Just to kick the discussion off, this long novel from the 80s that has this weird character named Owen Meany, and we'll get into why he's weird, and telling his whole life story. Would you, if, you, if somebody had sort of the gun-to-head scenario and you had to say whether this was, book in general was more interesting and worthwhile experience to read or more frustrating and less worthwhile experience to read, what would you say by, by way of you know, entering into a discussion of the book? Oh man, <laughs> I I've been thinking about this book quite a bit. After, you know, since since finishing it, which was probably like about two weeks ago, I've been really been mulling it over in my mind. Not just because 
I knew we were going to discuss it, but you know, there's a lot that's jammed into this book. And uh, so I kind of vacillate between those two polls that you just described, but mm-hmm. I gotta be honest. I, I have to be honest. And I, my honest answer would be, I personally would found it and would tell people that uh, I thought it was a little more frustrating than it was valuable for mm-hmm. me, for me personally. Now, uh, having said, there's a lot about this book that's really original. Uh, I can totally understand why uh, it's been remembered. Um, especially, with, you know, the central character is one that's kind of hard to forget. Yet at the same time, I'll just, I was going to say this later on, but I'll just say it now. Having thought about this novel a lot over the last couple of weeks, having finished it, I don't think there's a single character in this novel, dude, that I really liked. Mm-hmm. No, and and this is a novel that has a lot of characters in it. I I didn't particularly like the narrator, and that's important because his uh, he's telling the entire story, and it vacillates between. So you didn't mention this, but you know you can't mention everything in your setup. But you know it has the book has a structure, kind of a flashback structure. So the guy, so John Wheelwright is narrating it as an older man. After and again, spoiler alert, but we already talked about this. After uh, Owen Meany does not survive the book, he is he is uh, deceased. Um, right. So he is reminiscing about the life of Owen Meany in this book. So there, it has two timelines. One is uh, the nineteen eighties. I think it's the late eighties. Um, I don't know, but it's in the eighties. I think uh, Ronald Reagan is still president because he does a lot of ranting and raving about Ronald Reagan, which we'll talk about. Right. Um, but he's looking back on his life as a, I guess I could do the math, but I guess he's in his forties. He's a middle-aged guy. Mm-hmm. And he's reminiscing back on his life with Onini, which goes from the early fifties uh, or even the late forties when they're, when they're 11 years old, I think is when it starts. And uh, up through, you know, they've graduated high school. Owen Meany goes off to Vietnam and they're kind of young adults. So there are two timelines of the book. One is when uh, the, the narrator is in his 40s and looking back on his childhood. And the other is when Owen Meany was alive. Um, and I found, I just, the narrator, his voice, especially in all the parts, and there are many, the parts where he's older and looking back and, he looks back on his life with Owen Meany, and that's sort of interesting because he's doing a lot of kind of like trying to figure out the significance of Owen Meany in his life and stuff. But he does a lot of just ranting and raving about politics, about Vietnam, about his own struggle with faith. And I just found him kind of exhausting. And then and then there's the main character, Owen Meany, who uh, is a really unusual guy. We'll get into that. He uh is you know very kind of this messianic figure irving you know works really hard to kind of portray him as kind of a jesus figure but also Mm -hmm. at the same time which is sort of weird and unusual he's kind of the angel of death in a way too (laughs) literally literally in the case of the narrator's mother um but i i just found him to be a very odd you know, strange oddball character that I found it hard to relate to as well. So you have this narrator who I didn't really like, and you have own we- Meany, 
I almost said Owen Weenie, which <laughs> might have <laughs> might, might make might sense. fit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I didn't really like him as a character either. And he, you know, there are a lot of other characters, none of whom I found particularly sympathetic. So to go back to your question, I think there's a lot of interesting elements in this novel, and it's very original, and it certainly sticks in your memory. At the same time. I, I have to say, I find it kind of a frustrating experience to read it. And at the end of it all, which we'll, you know, we'll unpack this, but I'm really, conf- I'm really not sure uh, at all what, what we're supposed to get out of it. You know, it, it, the, the novel has a lot to do with faith and the struggle to believe or be a believer. It's right there in the first opening paragraph about um, I am a believer because of own meaning. Own meaning is the reason I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. The narrator says, but yet uh, throughout the entire novel, he struggles mightily with his faith and being a Christian, and he doesn't seem to see much value in it. You know, so right. wait, I'm 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 going all over the place, but uh, that would, my answer would be, even though I find it found it to be an interesting and original novel, I also found it ultimately to be an ex, a frustrating experience, and I would convey that to somebody who asked me about it, but what, how, what about you? How would you answer that? Uh, I was, I, since I'm the guy who posed a question, I, I, I'm turned away. Anybody turning the question on me? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I, I was considering it. And I, I, you know, I chose this book, John. And one of the things I wanted to do is choose a book that was older. And I hate to use a cliche, but this is a kind of book that I think of as, applicable when you bring up the cliche they don't make them like that anymore you know mm-hmm. and i did that sort of deliberately because this is a like i said it's a book from the 80s it has a it's long it has this sort of unusual structure it has many hallmarks that i recognize from being a big avid reader of charles dickens and we'll mm. talk about that and it's and it's mm. built in a way that novels aren't built anymore and i mention that because i have an affection for books like that and so I liked some of those aspects of that book, which a lot of readers today I'm, I'm imagining or I'm assuming would not like. So for me, if I was really forced to answer that question, I think I'm sort of almost right down the middle, uh, which surprises me because unlike you, this is my second read of the book. Yeah, I read it. That I don't remember when I read it, but I was 19 or 20, which puts me like either the year it came out or one or two years after it came out. And it was it was a big sensation. You know, it was a book that got talked about a lot at the time and still does in certain circles. Um, maybe not not as much, but people who read A Prayer for Owen Meany remember A Prayer for Owen Meany. And that is one of the big things in its favor to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought a lot about and one of the reasons why I wanted to put it in front of you was because I read it so long ago and I remember the ending. You can't forget the ending once you've read it. You know, and we'll talk about it later, you know, and I think that's so impressive. And, you know, this gets into that question of the type of readers we are. I'm probably more sympathetic toward novels, definitely towards bigger novels. And I'm again, I'm so interested in how they're made and how they're built and how the writer executed them. That for me, that was all of a piece with reading it this second time. But I will say, John, I was surprised by the things in it that I did find frustrating and I wrote down something very similar. I realized I didn't really like m- most of the characters either. 
And I yeah. was like, you know, I was surprised by that. Definitely the narrator. Owen Meany is, I don't, you're almost set up to dislike him from the jump, but you know, he's just, he's so kind of strange that, you know, it's kind of hard to judge him on the same scale in a way, you know, as everybody else. But then I realized that some of the cousins like uh, Johnny Wheelwright has these cousins that factor in and out of it, two boys and a girl. I didn't like them much. There's a grandmother that plays into it quite a bit. She was, she's very like, you know, crotchety judgmental, you know, didn't like her too much. And I realized essentially the same thing. And I also disliked a lot, a lot of the politics. It was the book's way more political than I remember, especially about the Reagan administration in the eighties politics of the eighties. Very. And I got, I got very tired of the, the, the narrator uh, ranting and raving about that. Um, And I realized I'm not selling the book. Well, we're not here to sell the book. We're here to just, sort of discuss it. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, I mean, it was sort of reflective of its time and a certain point of view or whatever, you know, but, but um, the problem I had with the, I, I don't necessarily agree with the politics of the narrator, but that's not the problem I had with that part of it. The problem I had with that part of it is I, it just was intrusive. I felt like it didn't really have anything to do with the story of Owen Meany. No, yeah. Totally the longer agree. it went on, the more it was a distraction. And, and you know, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I got to interject because I kept waiting. And anyone who's read this book, will, I think, will relate to this. I kept waiting for him to connect that to the story of own meaning. And, and I guess the connection would be, you know, the same sort of like arrogance and idiocy, I guess, that led us into Vietnam is still happening in the Reagan era. You know, he brings up Nicaragua, he brings up uh, Noriega, and, like different things that we would remember, we meaning us, because we're of a certain age. And we grew up, we were teenagers in the 80s, so we remember this stuff. But, right, you know, he kind of just leaves you to make your own conclusions that I guess his main point is, you know, nothing changes and, you know, there's still that kind of arrogance. And uh, But, and I have to interject here, Jude, that... Uh, it, it, it crossed my mind more than once to ask you whether the ranting uh, on particularly against Ronald Reagan reminded you of our old man <laughs> when we were, <laughs> when we were growing up, because literally like I, he would rant about Ronald Reagan in a similar way. And I never quite understood what he had against Ronald Reagan, but this book kind of reminded me of it for the first time in a long time of some of what, we would hear from our own father kind of muttering under his breath, which is sort of interesting when we were teenagers and we were like, who cares? You know, when's, when's the next Motley Crue Judas Priest album? Coming out? You know, like, <laughs> but you're right. Um, you're right. Anyway, I, I just wonder as a side note, whether, whether that reminded you uh, after a while, I started to think of the old man, but anyway, um, the, the larger point is that, you're right. It doesn't really connect to the story of Owen Meany. And uh, I just found all the parts with the, the older narrator. That's a good point. Like I, it, it, all the stuff with the older narrator, I found to be kind of a waste of time. And like, he's not a very likable character. He, he doesn't, he's like, uh, he, he says in the first paragraph of the book, well, I'm a Christian because of Owen Meany. But when he's older, he doesn't seem to know what he's doing in church. 
You know, like uh, he doesn't seem to really be a believer or he struggles with his faith, which is fine. I mean, a lot of people do. Um, I do from time to time. And I I know you do. Uh, But it just didn't seem to connect with other than his personal connection to Owen Meany. It just didn't seem to connect to the story. And I never really put that together until you sort of drew that out. But I, I think that is a potential flaw of the novel. But anyway. Yeah, Sorry. no, I think it's a, I think it's a big flaw of the novel, really, and and there's a lot of things I like about it, which we'll discuss also. But th- those were the place. One more thing, like like I'm just, I totally cut you off, but like, why are we supposed to care about this older narrator's struggles in his life now, post Owen Meany? You know, like I, I, I don't. It's just hard to make the yeah. connection between his current situation and and what we're supposed to feel about Owen Meany and what us incredible special saintly character he is you know yeah there was something sort of askew there like you know they like you pointed out and john irving is kind of famous in a in a small sense for opening sentences and closing sentences um he's famous for being a novelist that writes his last sentence first and and he made a big deal out of that in a lot of places himself you know um so, like, you know, famously, he wrote the sentence in the world in the world. According to Garp, we are all terminal cases, which ended up being the last sentence of that of that book. And then this this book has a last sentence too. Um, you know, we're spoiling everything. So it says the character of Johnny Wheelwright, the narrator is talking to God at the end. And he says, bring him. Please bring him back. I shall keep asking you. And that's the yeah. last sentence. But, you know, he does make a big deal in the first sentence to point out his Christianity but then you're right, John, throughout the rest of the book, at least as an adult in those flash forwards to the 80s, there doesn't seem to be much to his Christianity, except the only the Gossamer thread is this Owen Meany character. Um, but yeah, good word. Indep- independently awesome. of him. It, thanks. Independently of him, though, there doesn't seem to be much going on. And then the more he talks, the more he just sounds like crotchety and stuff. But but, John, I want to I, I know we're zag- zagging all around. That's okay because that's of a necessity with this book because this book is hard to <laughs> it's hard to contain. But yeah, I, I think we 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 have to take a pause here and we have to talk about the person, the actual person of Owen Meany, you know, going forward because it's so integral to the whole story. So we've talked about him as kind of a bizarre and sort of a interesting and sort of sometimes irritating character, but he has these physical characteristics, which are absolutely vital to the whole story. And I'll just touch on a couple of them and you jump, jump in if you want. But so um, Johnny Wheelwright is like kind of a normal quote unquote, normal kid, 11 year old. Owen Meany is a minuscule sort of a runchish character. um, Who's an only child of these two parents that are basically reclusive and don't figure factor much into the story, to be honest with you. And, for some reason, and you know, the townspeople throughout the book speculate on whatever it is, you know, that caused him to have this stunted growth. Whether it's because his father is a runs a granite quarry because they're in New Hampshire, and whether it's like the granite dust or something else or something in the family or a disease or, you know, lots of drinking or smoking pot when he was in utero, whatever. Owen Meany came out and spends the entire novel as a very, very, very small individual. So he has very small bones and he, and 
And he also has this accompanying voice, which in the opening sentence, it says a wrecked voice that is like kind of a pipsqueak. So to go back to the beginning of our episode here, John Irving was reading from the very beginning of the novel. And then that, that voice he uses is for own meaning, obviously. But one of the devices that he uses in the book, which could annoy a lot of readers right off the, right off the bat is that every time Owen Meany speaks throughout the entire 500 page novel, his voice is in all capital letters. And that was kind of a, a gizmo or a gimmick that he used in this novel. That's one of the things that's famous about it. But for some people, they wouldn't even get past that, you know? So Owen Meany is not only, not only does he believe he's an instrument of God and he has this strange relationship to Christianity that sort of takes different twists and turns throughout the book. He's also this like very distinctive, undersized, unusual physical character. So I thought that was important to mention. Yeah, it is. It, it reminded me, you know, I, I wrote down, I was taking some notes about it. Like there, there is, and I couldn't think of a lot of examples of this, but there is kind of a tradition of, of novels where you have kind of a, a central character who's something of a misfit or uh, 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 either physically or like kind of socially, you know, uh, awkward or something of a, of a misfit that, that um, becomes kind of the hero of the story. I can't think of a lot of examples, but one clear example. um, And I was kind of vaguely reminded of this when I was reading it, but then I, I saw this reference elsewhere and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. And the main character of this book, Owen Meany, shares the same initials as the main character of Gunter Grass's The, the Tin Drum. Yes. Oh, Oscar something. Mm-hmm. I think that might not have been accidental. I think that book may have been somewhat influential on Irving in this book, but that character was dimin- diminutive. Yes, and, very much so. That John, that is no accident. That was yeah. a big influence on John Irving. Oh, yeah, I think it was kind of like a little bit of a tribute, but he was like a small character, like a dwarfish kind of character who would play this drum. It's called the Tin Drum. He would play this drum when he would get agitated or whatever. I read that book, and I remember yeah, that the central character being very hard to like relate to. And so I wasn't surprised when I heard that because I found Owen Meany to be this sort of bizarre kind of otherworldly, but sort of like kind of freakish character. But Irving mm-hmm. works hard to make him a messianic figure. I mean, literally he plays like the child Jesus in like yeah. their their town's like sort of passion play. Yeah, Christmas pageant. <laughs> Christmas pageant, which I, by the way, I mean, one of the things that frustrated me about this book, and we are bouncing all over the place, but. Uh, there is a there are two central sections that are extremely they felt extremely long. They're about the passion play, the Christmas pageant, and the Christmas Carol state production, where yeah. Owen Meany, Owen Meany again being sort of the angel death figure in this case, he plays the ghost of Christmas future, where he's like kind of pointing to Scrooge, you know, without saying anything, kind of like what his future is going to be and how he's going to die and miserable and alone. And that ends up being important to the plot because when he's playing this character on stage, he has this vision of, of a tombstone with his own name on it and date of date of death. But, but anyway, um, 
I'm trying to remember what I was saying. So uh, I just found like the central character Owen Meany, you were talking about his physical proportions and his size, and that is an important aspect of the book. You know, character, you know, he's described as being, you know, dwarf-like. He's described as being like, you know, having a wrecked voice. He's described it as having sort of translucent skin, almost like a like a vampire kind of character, like a bat or something, you know. <laughs> um, and yet, one of the things that irritated me tremendously about the book, I don't know why, but like like every woman in the in the book throughout all his entire life couldn't resist Owen Meany, you know. Like <laughs> they're always yeah. touching him. He's you know, when you think about it throughout the story, he gets the girl, the narrator doesn't, you know, he's got the girlfriend, he becomes the, the, the starring role in the play or in the Christmas pageant. He becomes the popular kid on campus in high school or whatever. He becomes kind of the voice of the student body, you know, he's just like, he's this sort of freakish character, but like, and, and also like, uh, you know, the girls kind of love him. They can't keep their hands off him. You know, the old, you know, John Wheelwright's mother has this, I don't know if, by the way, was anyone else creeped out by the relationship between Owen Meany and John Wheelwright's mother? Because she would always like take him in her arms and snuggle yeah. with him and like take him in her bed. <laughs> and then like, you know, I was just like, is this, is this character a freak or is he like Jesus or is the angel of death or is he like a Lothario? You know, yeah, like, Don Juan, you know. He's like all the he's everything at once. And then, of course, he's also a martyr who sacrifices himself, you know, for the mm -hmm. it's just it just I don't know something about all of that. It was just it was almost like he's asking me to. He's asking too much for me to, like, think of this character. I don't know how to say it, but, you know, there was just like he he was this like kind of Jesus figure who could also do no wrong, who was also wildly popular who is also sort of a freak and an outcast, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I, I just, I just, I, 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 all that adds up to being something that, and I know there's sort of like a mythic quality to this book or, or to that character, but I, I just didn't, it all adds to something that I found hard to relate to and just more bizarre than like relatable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's that there, there are so many aspects of this book that to me seem like, that's why I thought it would be really interesting to discuss like today now, you know, yeah. put in front, put in front of you when you're 50 years old and, you know, you have your, in my opinion, rather advanced to like reading, you know, scope or capabilities on you, as opposed to when I first read it at age 19 or 20, it's a very different experience, you know, not only was it a different time. And like I said, they don't write books like this the way they did back then in general. But, you know, now we're just, you know, we're three decades older and <laughs> and some of this stuff is going to be a lot harder to swallow. But but there's there's many aspects of this book that are like sort of uh, mythical, tall tale, um, you know, demanding of the reader that they sort of suspend disbelief in some ways, you know. And and it's like you said, there's like he's asking you to accept all these qualities to this weird little guy, Owen Meany that don't seem like they would all come together in one person. And it's a question of sort of how you either accept or don't accept that, you know, 
is going to be so integral to your experience with reading this novel, you know, because yeah. it's just this character that has, and, and he's also like this incredible, like editorialist, you know, in high school, he's right. like the, the, the editor of the newspaper and he writes these unbelievable columns and he, and that end up guiding the, the, it's like this private school, you know, that he, that he attends and his columns end up sort of basically being the yardstick for the, board of directors or whatever you know there's like all these different thing abilities he has and things that he's able to do throughout the book that you know johnny wheelwright has none of those capabilities and they're also just a little hard to believe so you know throughout the story you kind of don't you never quite know and it's a very similar to the tin drum in that way john you never quite know what to make of this guy all the way up through the end of the book and his like martyrdom and death and you're just like, and you said it earlier, you're like, you get to the end and you're kind of like, you know, okay, what was that? Or, you know, what, what was I supposed to make from that, from that whole saga, you know? And, but, and yet that there's a, there's a lot of things that I really love about it as well, you know? So I don't know, but like, um, anyway, did you have more that you wanted to say or should we, should we transition? Well, I think we, we, there's a key point in the beginning of the novel that we haven't touched on yet, which is it factors into all this too, which is that, you know, the first section of the novel is called The Foul Ball. And it's important to, and, and there is, there's, a, there's a thread through this that I noticed of like missing parents mm -hmm. or, you know, absent parents or parents who have been taken away. And, you know, fairly early on in the book, and this is the one, th one of the only things I knew about the book going into reading it was that uh, somebody, you know, there's a little league game and somebody hits a baseball and it hits the narrator's mother in the head and kills her. And yeah. that somebody is Owen Meany. So one of the, and it's, it's just basic and silly, but yet, you know, one of the, you learn early on that Owen Meany is the person is they call he's called throughout the book as like quote unquote instrument of death. You know, he is the one who caused uh, the narrators, the death of the narrator's mother. But one of the many jarring things about this book is to me, like he never ever seems angry or resentful towards Owen Meany that he killed his mother. You know, like, mm -hmm. it, it's just like they discuss it amongst themselves a lot, like what happened. And you would expect the guy to be like, you know, you killed my mother. Like, how can we be friends? You hit the ball that killed my mother. But for some reason, he's never like that. He just kind of accepts that this happens. And he has no resentment towards own meaning at all about the fact that he hit the ball. And obviously it wasn't intentional or anything. But that just seems odd, you know, like, I don't, how do you stay best friends with somebody who hit a foul ball that killed your mother? And like, like, I don't know, that's a, that's a strange aspect of the book too. Um, yeah. But, but that, that theme of, that's definitely one of the themes. There are many themes in this book, whether it be, you know, religion or politics or another one is sort of like, I don't know if it's a theme really, but there's a through line of like, like talismans or like objects that keep recurring whether it's the mm -hmm. baseball or whether it's the um uh the statue of mary magdalene or whether it's the armadillo you know 
there are things that just kind of keep resurfacing, which is sort of a, sort of interesting. Um, I kind of lost the thread of my of my point, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's just interesting how I just wanted to bring that up because we hadn't mentioned that yet yeah. about the mother. You know, the mother is a big figure for them both. You know, and he describes kind of like not only his own relationship with the mother. Oh, and another aspect of this is that he never knows who his father is until late in the book. His mother. Right. Refused, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, his mother will not tell him the identity of his father, and it's this big mystery throughout the book. And then you eventually you do learn who the father of the narrator was. Um, but anyway, so that's another kind of. And even Owen Meany's parents are sort of apt. Owen Meany's mother is sort of like mentally disturbed. And as you said, is not much of a character in the book of all in the book, in the book at all. And you don't really learn anything about her. She's kind of like an absentee figure, you know? So it's yeah. sort of interesting for that perspective. And I think there's actually a biographical element in there in John Irving's life, but you know, I don't know. As we said, there's a, there's a ton of threads in this book. Yeah, there really are. I know. really struggle with, like you said before, like what does it all add up to? What are we supposed to be getting out of the book? How are we supposed to look at Owen Meany? I don't know. I, I got to the then that's why I would, would characterize this book as sort of a frustrating experience. Cause you get to the end of it and you're just like and we, we might want to take a little break here, um in the action, maybe get a little more panda or, or whatever, but um anyway it, it just there's a lot going on but i'm not i'm really having thought about it a lot i'm really not sure you know what it all adds up to well and and that to me that what you're talking about introduces another subject too which is kind of the, the structure of the book so let's take a quick technical break and then i'll talk about that a little bit if you don't mind yeah that, that sounds good John, you there? Yep. Well, another really interesting aspect about the book, and I was thinking about it while you explained about the opening set piece with the foul ball and, and you know, that whole thing, um, which just sets sort of all the action in motion, is kind of the way this book is structured, which I kept returning to and mulling over as I read the novel. So the foul ball, so the book is told in a series of uh, seven or eight, maybe more long chapters that are essentially like set pieces, you know, like set pieces in the movies, you know, like you have this big, like whole sequence in a particular environment or situation that goes on for a while. And it has a lot of moving pieces, you know? Yeah. This book is written as a series of set pieces, you know? So, so the, like the first one is called the foul ball and it ends with like sort of, and many of these set pieces end in kind of a dramatic or a semi-dramatic fashion, you know? And in this case, with the foul ball, you know, he, Oh, and mean, he hits the foul ball and it ends. That's kind of what sets the whole rest of the plot in motion. But there are many other chapters. All the chapters that follow are kind of different sort of extended long little mini sequences of themselves throughout the time frame of these characters lives that have these kind of unusual circumstances. And then something either dramatic or weird or kind of crazy will happen like with the, um, um, with the, the Christmas pageant, for example, like Owen Meany kind of, kind of steals the show and then he ends up kind of uh, 
going off script as it were and take leading this whole march of actors kind of out of the theater and like it turns into this whole like kind of insane you know memorable um night at the theater i guess and then yeah, um, and, and he also like kind of tears into his parents publicly in the yeah. middle of the play and he also uh, uh sports an erection <laughs> You know, as a, as as a baby Jesus in the stable, you know, it's like <laughs> that has to be mentioned because I think I think John Irvin has John Irving has fun with like irreverence at times. Yeah, he does have sort of an irreverent streak, and uh, you know, <laughs> he worked that into the kind of nativity, which is just like sort of nuts. You know, yeah, it's but, like the, yeah, I hate this. It's like the baby Jesus boner. You know, it's like come on. Yeah. And then there's uh, another spoiler is towards the end of the book, there's this whole set piece chapter called the finger. And, and it's, it's sort of the penultimate set piece and what it ends up where. And each one of these kind of goes on a meandering course. They seem to, some of them really seem to go forever and there's all these events and then there's flash forwards to Johnny wheelwright in the future. And they kind of go on and on. And then they end up with some kind of dramatic situation. And then the, the one called the finger um, at the end of that sequence, Owen Meany uh, ends up leading and they're like, you know, young adults, they're like, you know, finishing up. Uh, I think they're in college at the time, you know, and the, the Vietnam War is just getting underway. And Owen Meany decides that he wants to prevent his best friend, Johnny, from going to Vietnam. So the way he decides to do that is he maims him by taking uh, Johnny into the, the quarry, the, the mining, uh, the granite quarry. And using one of the diamond saws to cut one of his fingers off, you know, to right. to make him ineligible to be, literally not be able to pull a trigger, you know, on a right. rifle yeah. and make him in, ineligible for the war. And each of these set pieces, you know, are kind of built up and uh, they felt like all almost like little mini um, movements in an orchestra or something to me that, you know, took a lot of like machination and building together and imagination and other things. And they usually lead to some kind of dramatic moment Now you can buy the moment or not buy the moment, but they, they kind of all ended that way. And that actually, for me, that was one of the things that I liked about the book was it was built together of these different sequences. It had a lot of highs and lows and they all seem kind of like for better or worse, painstakingly built and constructed until the last chapter of the book, which we won't talk about quite yet, but that is probably the most dramatic one of them all, and also the strangest one of them all, in a way. So that was one of the aspects of the book I like, was sort of the episodic nature of it. And again, I feel like this is something that you don't see today, you know? And that, for me, is a virtue more than like a liability. Yeah, and I actually agree with you on that. Like, I, I, I kind of started to notice that, too. There's something, you know, unusual and, and kind of intriguing about that structure that I didn't actually think of it in terms of, like, what you just said. Like, you don't, you don't see, you know, novels sort of written that way today. I don't know if that's true or not scientifically. You know, we haven't studied it. Yeah. But there's something about it that feels kind of like, like a throwback to a more – like an older style of writing fiction or a more epic or grandiose, you know, way of like constructing a novel. But I agree with you. I, that was one of the more entertaining aspects of it. The way that once you kind of got into the rhythm of that, like with the foul ball and I think the second 
section is called the armadillo and they do feel they're long they're kind of meandering you're like what you know where is this leading but then there was always kind of a way like a dramatic moment at the end of one of these long sections that kind of brought it together i agree with you i i, I did i thought that was kind of an original structure an original way to write the book that's one of the stronger aspects of the book to me um to me yeah. it's you know, the originality and the structure and the imagination are all in the plus column to me what's in the neg one what's in the minus column are the characters and like you know the ultimate again i hate to sound like a broken record but like like you know what this is all supposed to add up to and what we're supposed to take away from this character own meanie other than just like seeming bizarre and sort of like kind of irritating and hard to relate to. That's where the book, it just, it, it just doesn't all add up for me, but I agree with you on the structure. It's definitely unusual and interesting and certainly different. I can't, I can't think of many other novels that are kind of, you know, put together the same way. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I want to bring up two points and then I'm going to suggest that we kind of pivot towards the end of the book. We could go on. I mean, there's yeah, so much in here, but I think we should start moving towards the end because we have we have to discuss the end. But so yeah. I I have to say like for me, again, similar to the point I just made, but not quite the same is so I enjoyed the structure of the book. And I also um, I know John Irving is a big is a huge fan and admirer of Charles Dickens. The play Christmas Carol was all over this novel. Um, yep. I have an anthology that includes a Christmas Carol in it. Um, the book's called You've Got to Read This. It was edited by Ron Hansen, and he invited John John Irving in, and John Irving contributed. Um, his, like, most memorable piece was A Christmas Carol, and then he contributed an introduction to it in that anthology. Hmm. And John Irving, this book reminds me very much of a Dickensian novel. You know, like, again, that's why I say they're not really built like this anymore. Some of Dickens' most famous books are sprawling epics like this that are episodic, that tell these kind of like almost larger than life episodes that end with a dramatic flourish. It felt a lot like a Dickens book, which for me is a virtue. But, John, it's interesting because I, too, noted both times I read it, the originality of this book and, you know, how it just didn't feel like much else. But I noticed this as I was kind of thinking about this and researching is this book is also extremely derivative in at least three ways. And I'll try to explain them quickly. Number one, it's based very strongly. Own meaning is based very strongly on that character you mentioned from the Tin Man. Like it, it uses tin the Tin Drum. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gunter Grass's most famous novel. Um, right. And the character of Own, Own meaning is clearly derivative and almost, you know, you could argue is almost like a, a, a riff on or almost a rip off of that character. Right. Uh, no, yeah. Number two, Ron Hansen, as I mentioned earlier, was John Irving's house guest. And we're going to talk about the end here soon. But Ron Hansen in real life was an, uh, an officer during the Vietnam War, but he didn't fight in Vietnam. He served as a body escort that took the remains of dead soldiers from Vietnam from the aircraft in the United States and, and guided them to their family members. And that was his job, which plays in very heavily to the end of the book, as we're yeah. going to discuss in a, in a minute. So it's derivative of Dickens. It's derivative of Gunter Grass. It's derivative of Ron Hansen's story that you could argue belongs to Ron Hansen. And then lastly, another novelist 
that John Irving famously admires and um, has said in many public settings is the one of the greatest novelists in, in English is a man named Robertson Davies, who's a Canadian novelist. And, yep. and John Irving is, I, I believe he's Canadian. Um, yes, he is. Okay. And John Irving was a big admirer of Robertson Davies uh, throughout his life, and I believe might have studied under him, and um, has often said he's one of the greatest novelists in English language, period. Um, but he's really only the best known in Canada. And Robertson Davies has a story in which a character's mother is killed with a baseball. <laughs> so, so you could argue. It's a snowball. Oh, is it a snowball? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it, thanks for correcting me on that. But it's like a very similar sequence is my point. Right. You're right. Yeah. So as, a, so John Irving took at least four, you know, took liberties with at least four things that preexisted for this novel and you could we could have a whole discussion about whether that's like plagiarism or he was ripping all these people off or he just took elements from things that were influential to him and wove them into his own story of his own creation which i would also argue that he did like he kind of he took these things from all these different places but he created his own sort of magic from it if you will so i think that's kind of interesting to point out also so. Yeah, it's very interesting. All those elements go, and and I would fall firmly on the side of, it's not plagiarism. It's just you know, anybody who's a writer, and you would attest to this as a writer. You know, you're building off the work of the masters who came before you, and your influence. Same with a mus musician, you know, like yeah. like uh, <laughs> this is kind of a. The tangent, but we were talking about this young British musician uh, named Sam Fender, who, you know, uh, conscious, he kind of writes these songs that sound a lot like Springsteen. And he said in articles, mm -hmm. like, of course, you know, because I, you know, Springsteen is one of the masters and he really inspired me. And I'm trying to, you know, do what he did, but in my own way, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't take Irving to task for that. I think it's kind of neat that he would, uh, you know, kind of, create his own tribute to not just Gunter Grass, but Robertson Davies. I know the book, by the way, that I've only read one Robertson Davies book. It's called Fifth Business. But <laughs> uh, that was the book with the snowball. You know, yeah, so, you're right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And um, so it's just interesting how he's, you know, like any artist, you know, I think it's Picasso still like an artist, you know, you draw on the, uh, influences of those who have come before you, but you make it your own. I think that's what Irving is doing in this book. Now, whether we, I, I still find it a frustrating book, but I don't fault him at all for kind of drawing from some of those, you know, uh, uh, older books or, and, and you, and the Dickens connection is, is really interesting. You know, you would, you would know that more than most because, you know, I have to say to our listeners that, you know, Jude has this thing. We've talked about it before. Dickens, he reads at least one Dickens book every year. You know, he knows Charles Dickens' work inside and out. He's like an avid student of Dickens. And so he would, I didn't realize how this book kind of like, you know, sort of like uh, echoed some of Dickens' work, but it makes sense, you know, because, you know, he's one of the masters of the form. But so the, I think that's all cool. But yeah, we should kind of work our way towards the ending here because it, the ending has to be discussed. Um, well, uh, it, it is really interesting, by the way, that Ron Hansen, you know, an author that's come up on this podcast a lot, 
you know, John Irving was drawing from some of his direct experience, you know, yeah. as he was crafting this book. I, I think that's a really interesting tidbit. Yeah. So let's do this, John. Um, I'm <clears throat> going to do a little setup again, and then I'm going to boot it over to you. And then uh, if you wouldn't mind um, sort of synopsizing really quick what actually happens at the end of the book, and then you and I can discuss, um, you know, sort of how it hit us. But I want to set it up a little first. So let me do that now. So, so as the novel progresses through these set pieces, there is a little side tangent that begins rather inconspicuously as the book goes on. But after a while, you notice it continues to come back again. And all it is is that um, Johnny Wheelwright and Owen, basically just to kill time, you know, when they're because they have these sequences where they're just bored during the summer or whatever. They, because of Owen's diminutive size, they work on this uh, basketball shot in which, um, and they do it in an empty gym because they got like no other friends and there's nobody around. And, the, and uh, they start working on this basketball shot that they work to perfect um, over many chapters. And all it is is like Owen is so little that he passes, that the ball starts with Johnny. Johnny passes, no, no, it starts with Owen. No, wait a minute, I'm getting this mixed up. It starts with Johnny. John passes the ball to Owen, who runs towards Johnny, who's under the basket. It's kind of like a layup in a way. And then Johnny lifts the diminutive Owen up in the air as far as he can, and Owen dunks the basketball. So this is introduced into the book about halfway through. It seems like it has nothing to do with anything. And then you notice as the story goes on, they sort of continue to work on the shot. And they try to get it down further and further to, to within like three or four seconds. And Owen Meany insists on practicing this shot whenever they have the chance, even when they become older. <laughs> and so you start to notice this as a reader as you're plotting through the book. And then your, your mind begins to perk up and say, like, why are they doing this? And why is John <laughs> Irving, the writer, making such a big deal of this basketball shot? And then you get to the last chapter of the book, which is called The Shot. And then, John, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you take us through really quickly kind of basically what happens in the shot? No pressure in that yeah. chapter. Yeah, I wish you hadn't assigned that particular task to me because it's going to test my memory. But, like, uh, if I recall, and I'll probably only get this right in broad strokes, but, you know, Owen Meany enters the Army, um, and he's assigned to a base in Arizona, I can't remember exactly what he's doing. There. Well, uh, you know, his job, his job is to like Ron Hansen's, he becomes this kind of officer who, who greets, you know, um, uh, deceased soldiers, you know, and uh, as they literally come off the plane and he kind of connects them with their family. It's right? called, right. Uh, it's, it's called casualty assistance officer. I, I did it once. Oh, wow. I didn't 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 remember that. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, I didn't meet I didn't read remains because we weren't at war. But part of the job of a casualty assistance officer <clears throat> is communicating the death of a loved one to a member of the family from the United States government. Oh yeah, you I do remember that now because there's there is and the book has this too. But I remember you tell like there's an actual speech that you have to say on behalf right. of the U.S. government in gratitude for your son son or daughter's service and which is very moving. It's fascinating yeah. that you you actually did that and participated in that. So, and the one time I did it, I had I had to deliver it to a six year old child. <laughs> oh wow! 
Well, there you go, folks. That's another thing you can only get on the Book Exchange podcast. And uh, <laughs> uh, only one, I mean, I'm serious. Only one of us served the country, and uh, you know that was, a, I'm sure, a very hard thing for you to do. Strange, um, yeah. But go on. So Owen, that was Owen's job, and I, I'm trying to remember. My memory is so bad. You know why that took him to Arizona? I'm not sure, but he convinces his best friend John Wheelwright to come out and visit him. Um, and so John flies to Phoenix, Arizona. Owen meets him at the airport. And right. meanwhile, Owen, we said, mentioned this before. Owen has had some kind of vision of, of the day that he dies, you know, a tombstone with his name on it. He knows the day of his death and he has a sort of vision around his death. We don't know exactly how much he knows about what's going to happen, but we know that he knows Owen knows that John Wheelwright is there when he when he dies i think owen assumes i think this is made clear throughout the book that owen assumes that his death is somehow connected to vietnam or maybe in vietnam because there are vietnamese children right around when he dies so he has this sort of vision of his death and he tells john he's like you were there i know you're there and i know there are these vietnamese children there so i think it's in vietnam but actually what happens and this is one of the stranger aspects of the book to me you know it's kind of the book talks a lot about vietnam and our involvement in vietnam but no it's not in vietnam it's in this it's in an airport in arizona Mm -hmm. there and and we didn't even get into this but owen has this whole like hang up about catholicism and he really he has this like kind of aversion to nuns and he calls them penguins and so there are these nuns who are escorting kind of orphaned Vietnamese children off of a plane when they're in the when they're in the Phoenix airport and by the way another another example of like you know absentee parents you have these kind of orphaned kids who come yeah, off good the point. plane somehow and this part I don't there's there's somebody there in the airport who has some kind of a homemade bomb Right. It's a, so so I'll step in for a second. So Owen was out there to do the casualty assistance officer job. He delivered remains to this family of somebody who came through the same airport. Okay, yeah. one, of, one of the family members of the brother of the guy that was killed in Vietnam is disgruntled about the war and about the world situation. So he turns up at the airport with like a grenade. So yeah. take, it, take yeah. it from there. Well, <laughs> you must. I think you you finished it after I did because your memory's clearly better than mine of the very end. But somehow, uh, the kids, the Vietnamese kids, and Owen and his friend and and the and this guy with the bomb end up in the same bathroom, which is like a service bathroom, right? Right. It's like not like a main bathroom, but this sort of. It's very strange. It's very, and this is well. We'll talk about it, but they end up in this kind of like bathroom that's not for public use and it has this one very high window in it right right and so this guy the vietnamese children in there because they have to go to the bathroom very bad and the nuns bring them in there to use the bathroom i don't remember why owen and john are are in there but they are maybe because they have to use the bathroom no john um it's because they have owen volunteers to take the children into the bathroom into okay. the men's ba- men's bathroom because the nuns are nuns. 
So he tells oh, okay. them, so you, like, you remember it better than I do. So, like, no, well, yeah, it's okay. We'll do it. We'll, we'll get there. So, anyway, um, yeah, they're in the bathroom at the same time as these kids. And this guy comes in with this bomb, with this grenade, and kind of pulls a pin. And so, this is where the shot comes back in, right? Right. So, Owen realizes there's only a couple seconds. He, he, he basically decides, I need to save these children and everyone in this bathroom. And he says, he kind of signals to John. He's like, hey, you ready? Let's do the shot. So he runs towards John. John lifts him up towards the window. And as he's flying towards the window, the bomb goes off. Correct. And Owen is severely maimed in this explosion, but he manages to save everybody in the bathroom but his injuries are too severe and he dies. But it's worth noting that he, he ruins both of his arms. And we, I, I didn't even mention this, but there's also a weird theme of like armlessness through this book, which I never quite figured out. Yeah. <laughs> but very, very early on, there's, there's like really early on in the book, there's something about a, like an Indian legend in New Hampshire, where there's this sort of totem that has an Indian who doesn't have arms and that's some kind of symbol. And then later on in the book, uh, Owen kind of desecrates a statue of Mary Magdalene by taking her arms off. And he moves the statue into like the school auditorium or something. But then at the end of the book, Owen ends up losing his arms because it's, it's very strange. I don't and know. They also they... have early in the book, they have this stuffed armadillo. Right. That's and, another one. And Owen um, steals it from johnny and cuts the <laughs> cuts the two front paws off you know <laughs> but that's you know, that's example just... like like this book is almost kind of overstuffed with symbolism and things mm -hmm. like I, I have no idea what all that armlessness is supposed to mean yeah and it just kind of almost felt like a contrivance like oh oh i can kind of weave this through but it has yeah. really no meaning you know right. it's a little heavy-handed it is to me. I, I, it's one of my, again, one of my big issues with this book is it has a lot of elements and they don't, they don't seem to add up to a whole heck of a lot. And I know that there are people who take issue with that, but I just was left kind of confused trying to wonder what we were supposed to get out of it. And I, I want to say one more thing about the end is that you can kind of give me your, now that we've sort of summarized the end, you can sort of give me your thoughts, but, uh, a, a friend of mine suggested that see one of the things that was off putting to me about the end is like at the very end, very, very end. First of all, we go to Arizona, which has nothing to do with the rest of the story, which is sort mm -hmm. of odd. Mm -hmm. And then these Vietnamese kids come off this plane and enter into the plot somehow. I don't, I, I can't possibly see how you couldn't see that at those kids as kind of like basically a plot device. What are we, you know, why was he saving those kids? I guess just because they're part of the meek <laughs> and poor among us. I don't, I don't know. But mm -hmm. uh, mine suggested uh, somebody who had read this book said it would have been kind of interesting. I thought this was an interesting suggestion. It would have been interesting if he had tacked on an epilogue where he kind of explains a little bit of what happened to those kids, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. later on. So that the, 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 the saving of them would have some meaning. But the way it is in the book, it just seems very abrupt and kind of like, I hate to say it, but just sort of like a plot device. 
So mm-hmm. that's one of my criticisms. But uh, I don't know what what do you, let's get into. What do you make of the ending? Do you think it was successful? I know you've said many times to me, "Oh, it's very memorable," which I agree. But you know, is it a case of sound and fury signifying nothing? You know. Uh, well, you got me doubting myself here, but yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think that's something that readers will have to decide for themselves. Now, it's true. Yeah. One one thing I told you throughout, you know, as we were preparing to do this and while we were both reading it, is one of the primary virtues of it for me is just that the ending is, uh, I just never forgot it, you know, for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it stayed with me vividly. Like I, that's the one thing I knew. I There was a couple of sequences I remembered from the book, The Foul Ball, um, the the um, the finger, the cutting off of the finger and the end of the book. And they just they just were there in my memory as if I had just read them last week. I think that's impressive. But your question is 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 valid. Like, you know, what, especially bringing in Shakespearean reference, you know, like sound <laughs> and fury signifying nothing. You know, I I think that's a valid question. It's a very John question, you know, but I think that's a valid question. I think a lot of readers would get there. I know for me personally, you know, just reacting to the ending. Um, it is like, it's, it's very melodramatic. Um, it's, it's a little over the top. My sister, Alice, who's very like, John, Alice is like very, she's a nurse. She's pragmatic. Doesn't have yeah. a lot of time for bullshit. <laughs> you know, she yeah, described it's... the ending as ridiculous. <laughs> and yeah. I think, I think it's open to that criticism but for me. Sure. You know me, I'm a sucker for ambition and um, swinging for the stars with novels and um, yeah, trying I, I would, to... Go ahead. Uh, also, kind of, I hate, I, I don't mean this as an insult, or, but like dramatic gestures. What? The, 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 I'm, I'm a sucker for them? Yeah, sort of. I, I think yeah. that... You, kind of admire them maybe from a at a dramatic level and maybe this has to do with you being a writer yeah i mean i i struggle with this i don't know if it's a weakness or if it's not a weakness or if i shouldn't like these things but like you know when it's memorable like that i kind of dig it you know i'm not gonna apologize too much you know and one thing that just that i admire about this book I, i i agree it's very uneven and it and it does feel filled with i don't know if 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 i want to say filled with contrivance but it has contrivances and at certain times you can feel the author straining to make it all work like that last chapter is just there's so many weird things that happen why is it in arizona it's a very bizarre turn of events it's very carefully written this is a book that feels like it had to be 500 pages because it's so convoluted you know but yeah you know, and this is a little bit of a tease for the next episode. We're going to talk about at the end here, but like big books are like that, you know, and I like that about big books that they take on a ton. And I was going to say before, in a strange way, like when I was in the middle of this book and I like your phrase earlier about once you've kind of sort of apprehended the rhythm of the story, I, it felt it was kind of a weird juxtaposition. The book felt like it was taking me forever to get through. But at the same time, again, 
we've talked about this many times as a motivation for me in particular with reading when I would sink into it, I, it was comforting to me to be in this world of this strange story. And if nothing else, you felt like John Irving knew the town. He knew the characters. He knew the whole thing. He had kind of command of the whole enterprise, even though it felt sort of like bloated and overstuffed at different times. So a reader's sort of propensity or capacity to tolerate those things is going to drive how they react to this novel. It's a very polarizing book. A lot of people are going to be like, God, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. And some people are going to be like, you know what? It was a story. I've never read anything like it. And it was just, it kind of made me feel something I hadn't felt before, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, and to take it back to the beginning, I think I probably found it a little more frustrating than I did truly meaningful. Uh, But is it memorable? Definitely. I think we've touched on, you know, some of what makes it unique and different, certainly structurally. And, you know, as we've touched on many times in this, in this show, you know, it's like the way we approach the way we value and appreciate books sometimes is a little bit different. And Mm -hmm. I think you see a lot here in the craft and in the originality of the novel that makes it admirable to you. And because that's not as important to me because I don't write fiction, it's not as it's not as heavy a weight a weighted factor for me, and um, you know, to me, I, I, you know, I, I have to say that I was a little bit more frustrated by the book than I was, you know, uh, found it like to be this profound experience. But am I glad I read it? Definitely, and I it's certainly I can't think of many novels that I've read that are quite like it. Having said that, I don't, I'm not running to read another book by John Irving, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although I admire and appreciate a lot of his influences. And I, and um, even, you know, the way in a weird way, how his sort of philosophy of like learning and teaching fiction impacted your life (laughs) in a way, because like you learned in Stephen Wright's class to be civil, to be personable, to be constructive in your criticism and that in a weird way came from John Irving. So that's, that's an interesting connection from this artist that we're discussing uh, right to uh, one of your co-hosts here. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a book that, yeah, you know, it's a polarizing book. It has so many different tangents. It's got so much going on in it and it's uh, the kind of book that could really, sustain a long discussion so anyway i feel like we've kind of done what we could with it john um you know you know for those readers that dare to take it on you're gonna have to and i know there are a couple that have mentioned to us that they're reading it so it's going to be interesting to hear from those readers and you know see what other people make of it as well yeah i didn't get to say this before but you you mentioned it and um you know, it's probably too late, you know, to, to go over this back again now, but it did irritate me. The device of having every word that Owen, were, Owen Meany said be in capital letters. I found mm-hmm. that to be sort of a distraction and an irritation because number one, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this. It, it, it made me immediately think of those red letter Bibles where the yeah. words of Jesus are in red. So you're like, Oh, well, this is, I got to pay attention to this part because it's Jesus, you know, right. like, and it also just 
it's a little irritating because it's, it's like a text where somebody like your mother or something forgets to turn the caps lock off and it's out you're like why are you yelling at me you know it's like everything he says has this like greater weight or emphasis <laughs> because and i i found that to be sort of distracting and irritating but you know maybe that's i i, I should have said that a lot earlier but you know one thing I, I feel like you do feel in this book is says he's really laboring hard to make to, to and I felt that labor to make Owen Meany into this like martyr Christ figure. And it, it just was like, okay, it was a little heavy handed to me, you know, but yeah. anyway. I think that's we, fair criticism. I mean, uh, the, the capitals didn't bother me, but they would a lot of people. No question. They did. bother. I got to say they bothered me right out of the gate. And, um, like, like I was saying to you, I'm, you know, the Capitals are one thing that if I had heard that recording of John Irving with that voice that we played at the very beginning, <laughs> you know, which sounds like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, like I think I'm, that would have made it even worse. So, you know, yeah, he 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 takes some bold swings in this book, and uh, you know, as you said, it's it's up to the individual. You know, Stephen King thought it was like a masterpiece, so. <laughs> you know, well, you know that might I, say a lot or not say a lot. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he wrote a very glowing review of it in the Washington Post. So, which I wonder, by the way, whether that's had an impact on its kind of enduring kind of popularity. But anyway, uh, really, yeah, I really interesting pick for one of these episodes, Jude. I think it was. Uh, I totally see why you picked it. And I hope, um, you know, readers got something out of our discussion. Yeah, I'm with you. Go through with you. So, uh, all right, let's take one more turn with Voyage Panda. And then we'll come back and we'll talk real quick about what we're going to read next. And then we'll tease the next episode. Nice. Let's do it. Hit it. All right, John. Well, uh, we talked about this off camera, so I'll start it off um, just about what we're going to be reading next. So I'm just like I said, I'm just finishing the book I'm reading now and I have the next one up in, on deck. Um, it's a novel. It's called it's a historical novel. It's called The Abstainer, which is a weird novel. Um, I don't know too much about it. I don't know too much about the writer. Um, it The name of the writer is Ian McGuire. He's a Scottish novelist, I believe. And he made kind of a big splash, pun intended, I guess, with a debut novel a couple of years ago. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I was just, I, I, I just went, ah, ha, ha, with your uh, oh. little pun there. Oh. <laughs> oh, that was a great one. Anyway, his debut novel is called The North Water. It was this, um, I don't even, I can't even remember the plot very well, but it was a, kind of like a whaling novel. Set in like the Arctic Circle. It was kind of a thriller. It had uh, tons of grit and violence and cold weather and ice. And it got a really ripping review in the New York Times when it first came out. I saw that. It attracted my eye. I read the book. Wish I could remember it better, but it was a 
thrilling kind of adventurous book that really ripped. And this is his second book. I know it has to do with a, a member of or a, an Irishman who has emigrated to America. He gets involved in in the fighting in the United States Civil War, so mid nineteenth century. And then after that conflict is over, apparently he's kind of a excitable and sort of a volatile young man. He comes back to Ireland and he immediately gets involved with the Fenian uprising against the British government, trying to throw the British government out of Ireland um, and Thomas uh, Cromwell or Oliver Cromwell and all that business. So um, it looks to be kind of another historical thriller type of book. So uh, I think it's going to be really violent. I think it's really going to cook. So that's my book. I don't know much else about it. It just caught my eye, and I'm uh, hoping that it's uh, worth the time. So that's what I'm reading. And what are you going to read next? Well, um, am I allowed to talk about what I'm going to read next? Because you know what it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's up to you. Well, okay. So um, what I'm reading next is, is special because my here who is a, a fiction writer and a novelist I forgot this <laughs> yeah has been is it okay to talk about this or yeah no you go, go ahead i mean just briefly it doesn't have to be long yeah so uh my co-host here jude has been hard at work on a on a new novel that he's been writing for quite a while that it's actually sort of a sequel to something he wrote years ago he wrote a short story that featured a character named foster mullins um, which is a very, right. it's, it, it, and you can find that story, by the way, in his short story collection, Door in the Air, um, which is available on Amazon. So uh, I'll plug that for you so that you don't have to do it yourself. Thank you. But, Appreciate uh, that. Really cool collection of, of short fiction, by the way. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm his brother, but I really think there's a lot of like really, really good stories in it. The Foster Mullen story is one of my favorites because it's very funny and kind of satirical and it kind of harkens back to uh, Jude's days uh, in the fiction program that he talked about earlier and being a struggling writer. But he kind of takes this character who sort of, I, I think it's okay to say, he kind of like mysteriously disappears at the end of this short story, um, right. which is called Foster Mullen's Unman, Unman being an acronym, which I won't explain. But this character uh, has 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 um, resurfaced and uh, is actually sort of the uh, the author of this new novel that Jude is putting out under the. I guess I can say this. I I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds here. But he kind of right. Go ahead. Like Stephen King wrote under the name Richard Bachman, Jude's writing under the name Foster Mullins, and so this new novel that's coming out was written quote unquote written by Foster Mullins. But it's kind of a sort of a detective novel mystery story that takes a lot of twists and turns. Um, I know Jude has been working on it for a while. It literally just got published and is still sort of in galley form. So I'm really excited to, uh, you know, I, I read everything he writes and I'm really excited to kind of read it and then give him some of my constructive feedback. But this is a novel that's going to be forthcoming in the near future. And um, I'm very excited to read it because I love the original story. This is sort of a detective slash thriller. Um, I read a couple of early excerpts that were really funny and kind of riffing on like detective movies and like whodunits and stuff. I think this is, it, it sounds like it's going to be really fun. And I'm 
and I'm really looking forward to it. The novel itself is called Time O'Clock. So my next book will be Time O'Clock by Mr. Foster Mullins. And I'll just say, I'm personally, I'm really glad that he resurfaced because, um, you know, I miss that guy. And I wanted to see what he was up. To. I wanted to see what he was up to, and now I, I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, well, I sort of forgot that you were reading that, so I didn't mean to. Sounds like a self plug, but no, thank you for being willing to read it. It hasn't come out yet, and just to set the record straight, so Foster Mullins in the, the original story I wrote, which is all, which is twenty years ago, by the way, he kind of vanishes at the end, not to give too much away, and this novel, Time O'Clock, is actually kind of a prequel. So it takes oh, okay. place All right. before the events of the, the original story. But the but you're right, the character of Foster Mullins has kind of resurfaced in a way uh, because I certainly never intended to write about him again. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to make of this book. It's weird. It takes a lot of twists and turns. We'll see. But I appreciate you reading it. <laughs> well, I do know that Drew's written a, one other thriller that was kind of twisty and turny and a lot of fun. That was called Deliver Me, which you can get on Amazon. And it's kind of a brief volume. And that was a hell of a fun ride. So um, I would recommend that one to our listeners for sure. But this one is going to be available at some point. So I hope some of you will, you know, look for it and go check it out. So anyway, that's what I'm reading next. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, stay tuned. Maybe more details to come on when that will be available. So, okay, we'll just wrap it up. I'll, I'll do a quick tease, John, of episode 35. So yep. we're going to do kind of some uh, slightly different in the next episode. I mean, not really, but slightly. It's a, but a little related. bit of a spit. What? Yeah, but related to what we were just talking about. So go ahead. Right, right, right. It's kind of a almost a spinoff of this one. So we're going to discuss um, the title may change, but uh, what I'm calling it, at least in my mind, is go big or go home. Yeah. And we're going to do an episode about big books. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um, it's not necessarily because we've done a lot of episodes that are our favorite of this kind of book, our favorite of that kind of book. Um, It's not necessarily going to be that, although we will talk about some of our favorites, but I just, I had some thoughts around, you know, the experience as we were going through own meaning, the experience of reading like a large book, like a, epic kind of book both in fiction and even in nonfiction. and what is what's different about that experience from something like a ripping thriller or a short treatise on something you know and what is it about like large books do you do we like them do we not like them do we find them laborious do we find them immersive in a good way so we're going to talk next episode about big books some of the virtues of them some of the some of the liabilities of them and maybe some of our favorites so that's coming up next. Yeah, that should be a, an interesting one and like a, a little bit different, uh, at least structurally, from some of the ones we've done recently. So uh, maybe just more kind of a, uh, a general topic rather than a survey of particular books, even though, as you say, we're going to bring up, inevitably, we'll bring up some of our favorites. Yeah, yeah, I think we will, but I think we won't get so far into maybe the plot, but just kind of talk about, you know, what is it about, you know, these books? How are they made? How do they come across a reader, et cetera, et cetera? So that's where we're going to go from here. And I think uh, I think that wraps it up, John. Yeah. And once again, with a, at the risk of sounding like a, like a broken record, 
huge thanks to my godson Patrick and uh, you know, aka Void's Panda for providing the music musical interludes for this episode. Uh, it's a lot of fun to have you a part of the show, and um, I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, good discussion, Jude, as always. Yeah, thanks, John, and have a good night. And we thank everybody for listening to the Book Exchange podcast. Take care. Indeed. Bye-bye.